So once again, Jesus is telling his disciples that he's going to die. And they, having experienced his, uh, his, his rep- reprimand for not having grasped the truth, are afraid to tell him that they don't understand what he's saying. Indeed, four times Jesus has expressed exasperation about their lack of perception. And indeed, the last time Jesus publicly told them that he was going to be killed, Peter rebuked him, earning that stinging rebuke, get behind me, Satan. So the disciples know by this point that they should understand, but they don't. They should understand, but they don't. And so, in the midst of Jesus explaining to them yet again that he is going to be crucified and die, they are busy discussing who's the greatest. Jesus is setting forth for them the paradigm of his own ministry. Suffering now, glory later. And he's already communicated to the disciples the reality that the call to discipleship is the call to take up one's own cross and die. And so Jesus is setting forth for them in these opening words a key about discipleship in this life. You will have troubles. And he keeps reminding them of this truth because He doesn't want them to think in a moment of trouble that this is some sort of crisis. Is that not what we do? The, I'm trying to think of a a church-friendly figure of speech, but when things go south, when things go south, we think that this suddenly constitutes a crisis. And Jesus wants people to understand That no, it's all part of the plan. In Jesus' words here, he makes a slight alteration to what he says back in chapter 8. He says that the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. To be delivered means to be handed over. Now what does that imply? Betrayal? And we can immediately think in terms of Judas Iscariot and his betrayal of his teacher? But in the light of passages such as Isaiah 53 or Acts 2, where we learn that it was the will of God that Jesus should bear the sin of his people, it refers perhaps to God handing over his son. And yet, even further, in light of John 10, And John 17, where we learn it is not Jesus who's having his life taken away. He's laying it down. So in a very real sense, the Son of Man is handing himself over to men. What Jesus does right here is pivotal. Because what he is setting forth is the voluntary nature of the path of discipleship of setting aside his prerogatives and the pursuit of his will to live for the agenda of another, seeking the good of someone else. This is important because it directly speaks to the thing that the disciples are talking about. They're talking about greatness. They want to know who is the greatest. 
Ah, greatness. Importance. Influence. Respect. The good life. Isn't it wonderful to be great? Greatness. Two brothers were leaving church one day. And they had a discussion about what they wanted to do in life. The brothers were named John and David. John wanted to be rich and famous. David wanted to follow Christ fully. That's what he wrote. John, the one who wanted to be rich and famous, grew up to be a very successful attorney. David became a missionary. He wanted to go to China but was prevented, so he went to Africa where he became the great African missionary. You've heard of him. His name is David Livingston. He was arguably the most famous missionary ever to go to Africa. He explored. He discovered. He wanted to, one, spread the gospel, but two, abolish the slave trade. And he had the opportunity to go back to England and live a great, rich life and retirement, but instead he wanted to stay with the Africans he loved. So he died in poverty of a horrible combination of malaria and dysentery. And years later, his brother John, the one who wanted to be rich and famous, died. And the only reason you may have even have heard of John Livingston is because of his brother David Livingston, the missionary. Indeed, on John's headstone, tombstone, are written the simple words, here lies the brother of David Livingston. Greatness in this life can be measured and attained by influence and status, the pursuit of our own will. Yet in the economy of the kingdom, Greatness is defined by one's willingness to set aside the drive for the pursuit of self to live for the purposes of God. Jesus models this for us in his own willingness to be handed over. Complete surrender to the purpose of God. The desire to be great. The desire to be seen as a person of consequence runs through each of us. In fact, in 1 John chapter 2, when he summarizes the three primary streams of human temptation, there's the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. We want status. Now, most of us don't have delusions of grandeur, Okay, most of us are not megalomaniacs. We're not Alexander the Great, or you know, we're not we're not thinking that people are going to talk about us a thousand years from now as if we're still relevant. But what each of us does want is to be important, significant, influential, better than the competition within our own circle. Each of us has what Friedrich Nietzsche described as the will to power. He didn't invent it. Or, or make it up. He simply put the label on it. That drive that each of us has to exert our will to dominate other people, to impose our will on others. 
that's not true. That sounds very, very harsh. Really? It's why toddlers fight back against you. It's why you threaten others. Some of you may threaten with force. Some of you may threaten to quit if your boss doesn't. Some of you may threaten to leave. It's why some of you use more passive-aggressive techniques like, oh, I don't know, nagging your spouse. You want to wear them down so the other person succumbs to your will. That is the will to power, the desire to be great in that relationship. All of us have it. And here's the thing. The desire for greatness is not bad. You were created for greatness. Did you know that? You were made to be great. Which is why God gave us the capacity to reason and to have emotions and to serve, which is what greatness is. You see, the fall has affected everything. We live in a world that's like one of those house of mirrors where you go inside it and you have these mirrors that are in there so you can see reality, but it's always a distorted reality. Some mirrors make you look short and fat. Other mirrors look you look, make you look tall and skinny. Some of them make you look like you have a, like a mongoloid, you know, bulbous head. So, and in every mirror there is sort of a semblance of the truth, but it's still a distortion. So the desire to be great is there by God's design, but what constitutes greatness is due to the warpedness of sin. And so Jesus wants you to understand, look, if you want to be great, because pay attention, he doesn't rebuke the disciples for wanting to be great, does he? He says, if you want to be great, you've got to give up all the notions of greatness that the world has taught you. You're not great in the kingdom, just because on earth people tremble when they hear your name. You're not great in the kingdom just because on earth people think of you when they think of someone who's philanthropic or particularly benevolent. You're great in the kingdom when you set aside your will to serve gospel values. And so, I believe in this passage, he points out three different things that he points that, that we typically mark as indicators of greatness, and he subverts them. And so, for example, in chapter, 30, or in chapter 9, verse 35, he calls them to him, and he brings a child, and he says, anyone who would be great must receive one such as these. So the lesson we learn here is to serve even the insignificant and unimportant. Make no mistake about it. We in the West have a different view of children than the rest of the world. Unfortunately, you can look throughout the history of humanity and children have been subjected traditionally to horrible things. Even enlightened Greek culture permitted horrible exploitation of children. Now, being in a Jewish context, the children were saved from such horrific treatment. But nonetheless, even in a first century Jewish context, children were viewed as unimportant people. People who were not significant in any way. They were not a matter of concern. They were not a matter of significance at all. 
There are people who were kind of in the way. Children are the complete example of someone who society would say in that context is unimportant. Now that stands as a great reminder for us because we are very quick to gravitate towards wanting to do something for someone who we think can better us or benefit us. If someone great comes into town, we'll trip over ourselves to host them or to make them feel special. I mean, I remember many times in, in the military, you know, a, a senator comes through and you fall over yourself to give them the royal treatment. When you think someone can better you or benefit you in some way, or if being in their presence enhances your own clout, then you're all over it. And everyone, everywhere does that. But if you want to be great in the kingdom, you need to be willing to associate even with those who are completely unimportant, who in no way, shape, or form better you or enhance your clout. We need to remember that God calls us to show his love and to receive, even as you would receive himself, all those whom he came to save, even if they are part of the fringe. Do you speak up for those who don't have a voice? Do you act on the part of those who can't act? Or do you just kind of brush them off as dismissive? Are, are, you, are you thinking they're inconsequential? Are you willing to serve those who are not important? That's a big thing for people. James talks about it in chapter 3, how a rich person would come into the church, oh, sit here, but you poor people, you, you sit over there. I had a boss, my boss back in Germany. I'll throw him under the bus. He, he couldn't, he was a chaplain who didn't go to church at all. Okay? He didn't care. We had three chapels we tried to take care of. Two of the chapels he didn't care about at all. I had to fight for every penny to help those chapels get along. The one chapel he cared about, it wasn't because he cared about the people per se. You know what he cared about? There were two general officers who attended. And oh boy, you got to give those generals what they want. And so these other chapels languished, and I had to borrow, beg, and steal basically to take care of them. But this one chapel had whatever it wanted because two general officers were in attendance. That's gross. That's gross. Are you willing to serve those who have nothing to offer you? If you do, then you're on the path to greatness in the kingdom. Even though in the eyes of this world, you'll be completely, unfor you'll be completely forgotten. But then he moves on. Because a key part of Greatness in the world is our connection to community and the boundaries we set for our communities so that we know who's in, who's out, and what our role and what our status is inside the community. It's talking about tribalism. And you see it on display here in, chapter, in verse 38 through 41 where John says, we saw someone casting out a demon in your name. Now think about the lunacy of this for a second. He's mad because someone is doing what he himself couldn't do just a few verses before. It's a throwback to Numbers chapter 11, where 
there are a couple of guys who are prophesying outside the camp of Israel. And Joshua is, is offended. Moses, tell them to stop. And Moses says, are you jealous on my behalf? I wish that all of God's people would prophesy. Here, John is mad that they're not following us. They're not part of our group. And they're still doing works in your name. Oh, how strong is the human tendency towards tribalism. We only want to accept as good and right those who are in and a part of our group. And those who are not, well, we view them with suspicion or rejection. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 12, makes it very clear. Someone is either for me or against me. But here, Jesus doesn't say for me or against me. He has the usness in mind, that usness that we attribute to community. It is possible, hold on to your seat, for someone to not be a part of our group and still be in line with Jesus. It's possible even inside a church, for there to be little cliques where inside my group I have influence. And this group over here that I'm not a part of, that's, they, they, don't, they don't abide by our rules and, and pay attention to my, my clout, so I view them with suspicion. Recognize, it's okay if people are not part of your group celebrate the fact that someone is calling on the name of Jesus and in his name doing the work of the kingdom, which is exactly what Jesus calls this guy John to do. Look, he's casting out a demon in my name. Someone has just been liberated from the forces of hell. Celebrate it. Don't bemoan the fact that he's not part of your group. How often do we deny or ignore the work of God because the person doing the work of God is not part of our group, whether it's our church or denomination or just my little clique. So part of the attitude of greatness of the kingdom is allowing others to do the work of God and simply rejoicing that the work is done. Because we want credit, do we not? We want the glory. That's what greatness is. Are you willing to sit back and let others who are not part of your own group get the credit and the glory? That's part of the road to greatness. And third, most strikingly, he tells us to mortify the flesh. Verses 42 through 50 are all in the same vein. Okay, a key feature of greatness that people want is the benefits that come from being great. Namely, you get to live life how you want. A great person gets to do what they want, right? Don't we all envy the rich and the, and the famous who can come and go as they please and, and they go into a place and things are just handed to them? They, they go through life without a seeming care. Oh, that's what people want. People don't want the burdens of ruling the world. They want the privileges of ruling the world, right? That's what being great is all about in most people's mind, the benefits now, most people want to go through life without concern for how their actions impact others. And in verse 42, Jesus slams that. Because it is possible for you 
by the way you live, if you aren't careful, to cause one of his precious little ones to stumble, to sin. And if you do, it would be better for some 200 giant pound rock to be tied around your neck and you to be thrown in the sea. It would be better for you than what? To face the wrath of God. God takes it personal when people cause his little ones, his precious ones, to stumble. And so part of being great in the world means I get to live how I want without regard. But living as great in the kingdom means every step I take is taken lightly, knowing that I may, if I'm not careful, trample on my brother or sister and cause them to sin, and that would be horrible. Likewise, we want to indulge ourselves. That's what being great allows you to do. You get to indulge your wishes, your fancies. And so here Jesus talks about three parts of the body which in Old Testament you sort of summarize and symbolize the various means of accomplishing your will. The eyes throughout the Old Testament is the, is the organ that, that is a metaphor for perception. It's the things you allow into yourself. Your hand is repeatedly referred to as the, the part of you that accomplishes your purposes. The Lord's hand is mighty to save, etc. And our feet, of course, is what takes us to where we want to go. And Jesus here gives a very stark warning. In fact, some people have gotten into trouble over the years because they don't understand hyperbole when they read it. Hyperbole, but yet still making a real point. Understand that when people talk about taking the Bible literally, you've got to be careful with what you mean by literal. If I say I'm hungry, so hungry I can eat a horse, in one sense, is that a literal statement? No, I'm not going to literally eat a horse. But is that a, hyperbol is that a hyperbolic metaphor that illustrates a literal truth? Yeah, I'm really, really hungry. I don't say I'm so hungry I can eat a horse if I just want a little snack. Okay? So understand that when we mean literal, most of the time we're referring to the plain, normal meaning of the text. And the plain, normal meaning of this text is hyperbole. How do we know? How do we know that Jesus doesn't literally want you to tear out your eyes or cut off your hands or cut off your feet? How do we know? Three reasons. First, the Old Testament law, which Jesus continually upholds, prohibits mutilation. Second, I assure you, if you cut out an eye, if you lose a hand or lose a foot, you're not going to stop sinning. You're still going to sin. I've known plenty of handless people who sin. Okay? Third, Notice that he says, if it causes you to sin. Now you should re recognize immediately that that's hyperbolic language. How does your hand cause you to sin? Is your hand, I mean, is it like army of darkness where it goes bad and it's like trying to get you? Cut it off! Of course not! Jesus has just made the point that everything bad that comes out of us comes from the heart. So in a literal sense, cutting off your hand or your foot or even gouging out an eye, that doesn't change the heart, does it? So understand Jesus is being hyperbolic here. But he does make a very real point. You see, 
my hands, my feet, my eyes are very precious to me. I don't want to lose them. I take care lest I should burn them when I touch something hot. I wear gloves lest I should freeze them when it's frigid outside. I wear glasses when I weed eat or something so that way little rocks don't fly into my eyes. My body parts are precious to me. And the thought of losing them is not something that I am pleased with. I take care to protect my body. But so terrible is the reality of hell that no matter how precious your body parts might be to you, Losing them is nothing compared to what you will face if you indulge your flesh and flee headlong into that lake of fire. He's referring to the mortification of the flesh. That's an old word that refers to putting to death those parts of us that want to rebel against God and His commandments. The world says, oh, if you're great, man, you get to indulge. You get to live like a celebrity and have whatever you want, have whoever you want. Everything is a consumable object. But in the kingdom, greatness is defined as serving others and submitting your will and agenda to the will and agenda of the gospel so that you recognize that I have duties to care, to watch out what I do lest I offend my brothers and sisters. Watch out what I do lest in the process of pursuing my passions, I end up selling my soul. Jesus speaks so much more about hell than he does heaven. Did you know that? Virtually everything we know about hell comes from Jesus himself. The reality, the reality of it is unpleasant and uncomfortable and distasteful to our modern mind. But there exists a place of judgment where the body that will be resurrected is created to burn without being consumed. And if you want to know how is that possible, think back to the burning bush. It burned, yet was not consumed. Flee the lake of fire. Live like Paul with the judgment seat of God ever before your mind. You will give an account. Put to death all those parts of you that resist God and his leadership, that seek your own self-aggrandizement rather than the good of your brothers and sisters. And have this salt, this purifying presence that was required over all the sacrifices. Have it within yourself. If you mortify yourself, you'll be able to have peace with each other. If I'm slaying my sinful impulses and you're slaying yours, do you see how that's a recipe for real relationship? But do you see how if I'm pursuing mine and you're pursuing yours, how we're going to struggle? Just like the disciples were? Greatness in the kingdom calls you to serve, to lay down your agenda. Are you willing to do so? What thrills me, folks, is that virtually everyone I talk to, virtually everyone, regarding this possible service time change, has said, I have my, this is a summary, I have my preference, but I'm willing to roll with whatever. I have my preference, but I'm willing to roll with whatever. And that's great. Do you see how that is this exact thing in action? 
Now, if what immediately went into your thought was, ooh, that's great, that means they can go with my plan, you've kind of missed it. Greatness in the kingdom is about setting aside your will for the will of God and the good of his people. Greatness is in short supply. We were made for greatness. Will you step up and pursue it and be great, just as your Lord Jesus Christ was great? Let's pray.